3: Oh, we're so much in love.
4: Oh, like a storybook romance or something? Let's go skinny dippy. Uh,
3: storybook? Don't you know, Clara? Print is dead.
5: They thought Print was dead.
3: Did you, did you hear that?
4: <laughs> I can't
1: hear anything. I'm naked.
5: But Print isn't dead, it's undead. And it's back for revenge.
4: Something just landed on the porch.
5: Terror, delivered daily.
6: Don't go out there, Clara.
5: What's black and
4: white? Oh, it's just the New York Times. Look out!
5: And red all over.
4: Ow! A paper cut!
3: There's so much blood!
5: The red part is the blood part.
3: This is crazy, Clara. We killed print, I know it. We killed it last summer. With my smartphone and your Kindle and those idiot Huffington Post bloggers who work for free. No, no, we didn't. Behind you, on the bookshelf. What is it? It, Oh, Infinite Chest?
4: Danny, that's a novel that's a thousand pages long.
5: One thousand pages. Zero mercy.
4: I'll never, I'll never read the book. I'll never read the book. I'll I'll die first. I'll just wait for the movie. But,
6: Clara, the movie, it won't be very good. The movie
5: won't be very good. (laughs) Print. You can't hear its footnotes. You won't see its endnotes. And James Elroy will never sign a Kindle. Print is coming for you. And it's bringing an army of elbow-patched comparative lit majors with it. It's... It's... (laughs)
2: still exists for some reason. Tonight, graphic novelist Craig Thompson, Pulitzer prize winning author Isabel Wilkerson, and music from Stephanie Schneiderman. That's tonight on Live Wire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister. And you also have more comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took George Orwell to get some stuff right about 1984 yet somehow completely missed the part about Cindy Lopper. Scott writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned tonight. And of course, music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, Ralph. So we are coming to you tonight from the wonderful Wordstock Festival, the Festival of the Book in Portland, Oregon, celebrating writers and readers. Um, I mentioned earlier that we have Isabel Wilkerson on the show. She has written what many consider to be the definitive book on what historians call the Great Migration. This was where almost 6 million African Americans left the South for the North and West from 1915 to 1970. And the stories are extraordinary and poignant and powerful. But as I read them, I wondered, why hasn't anyone ever chronicled the great migration of my people, the white people? (laughs) I remember in sixth grade moving from the suburbs of Aurora, Colorado to the suburbs of San Antonio, Texas, and not really being able to tell we'd moved, except that there was no snow in the winter and people had weird accents now. It was a strange new world, exactly like my old world. And what of our cuisine? Will the fried bologna sandwich on white bread with SpaghettiOs ever be served in the White House? I think not. And when will our music ever be discovered? Will anyone in the mainstream ever know the names of obscure musical geniuses like Manilow, Groban, or Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch? Can the cultural impact of the Lawrence Welk Show ever be truly measured? I don't think so. And I remember the first time I ever saw a little movie you've probably never heard of called Top Gun, starring a white actor named Tom Cruise, I think. (laughs) Will the world ever truly understand his genius, and how can they if this film is trapped in small indie movie houses that cater to our people? I guess I'm just hoping that someday there will be some media coverage for this white culture that Glenn Beck talks about but refuses to define. Just wondering when our stories will start being covered on networks other than tiny cable outlets at the far end of the dial, like NBC, CBS, ABC. What do those letters even mean? ABC? Nice name, ABC. Just grab the first three letters of the alphabet, did you? You obviously care. Look, I'm not a hero, but I do spend a lot of time clicking like on the Facebook pages of things I feel passionate about. <laughs> Like women's rights, marriage equality, and the new Arrested Development movie. But if it's time to start a movement, I will. I'll put some Ben Folds on my iPod. I will strap on my Crocs. And I will march to Starbucks to get a mocha. And then I will march wherever Jon Stewart tells me to. Because our time is Now. Or it's soon because I still have to watch the last season of Gilmore Girls on DVD. So if there's like a demonstration or something, it would be really good if we could do it next week. So, thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Our first guest tonight is an amazing solo artist, but she also plays well with others. She released seven solo records, two with the band Dirty Martini, and more recently she's moved into the world of electronica. But tonight she's back to her analog roots, and she's brought the collaborators from her upcoming CD with her. With members of the Roxy Consort Ensemble and the 45th Parallel Quartet, please welcome Stephanie Schneiderman to Livewire. Thank you. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Courtney. That was absolutely stunning. <laughs> Thank you. It was really beautiful. Um, and I did mention that you that you'd sort of gone a, a little like electronica in the last two records, yeah. where you were working with producer Keith Schreiner on those records. What made you kind of go back to your roots a little bit?
4: Well, I had a fan that actually kind of inspired me to do it. She said, she would love to hear some of those same songs that have been electronic but in a very acoustic fashion. And I just can't ever keep things really simple. So I decided, God, it'd be so cool to get a string section and, and to get a choir. And so I asked my buddy Dave Mills, who's a wonderful arranger, to arrange some strings and my choir buddy back there, Paul Satellek, to arrange some vocals. And then this wonderful group of musicians came together and it's really fun.
2: Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to have a choir in a string session? Do you have a an inflated sense of self now? I do. <laughs> My head is like, you <sighs> know. It's just I don't know. It just feels kind of magical. Well, as a songwriter, it must be pretty extraordinary. Yeah. What, really. what does it feel like the first time when you write something and then suddenly? Oh,
4: I, I mean, when we had our rehearsal and we were working on um, this other song, "Stone China," and it just it felt really emotional to me to hear like all that strings come in with this beautiful pizzicato part, and it's just emotional, yeah, sort of a weepy mess in in general anyway, so yeah, it doesn't take very
2: much, yeah, easily cry. How do you feel about um Christmas hallmark commercials?
4: <laughs> I try to stay away from those, yeah, they drive me to chocolate chip cookie dough, so I just'. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: I did want to ask you because it's Wordstock. Do you remember the first book that you read that had a, a really big impact on you? I do. It was Davida's Harp by Chaim Potok.
4: I loved that book. Was, I've never
2: read that book. It's an
4: interesting book. It's about this young girl who moves around. It's kind of um, her parents are really political and really they're socialistic, and she has this beautiful harp that they always put on their on their door wherever they live. And so that that sound of opening the, and closing the door, even though the door changes, the harp's always
2: there. It's kind of mm-hmm. sweet. And what was it about that story in particular that struck you? I don't know. There's a lot of um,
4: mysticism to the story as well as like it was, seemed really grounded in just like this young girl's experience. And I was a young girl, so I kind of related. I mm-hmm. loved it. I don't know. It's hard to explain. <laughs>
2: Um, I just wanted to ask you one last question. You're married to Tony Furtado, who is also an amazing musician. He's a great guitar player, banjo player. Um, And you guys play a lot. We do, yeah. Together, out. Is there extra pressure when you're a couple and you play together to have it actually really work? Like, if you don't harmonize well, do you go home thinking, oh, do we need to talk? Oh, God. No, we never. (laughs) That's so funny. No, in fact, we don't
4: actually play that often with each other. Like, it's more of a random sitting in versus it being a planned thing. And we have yet to actually ever sit down and work anything out, like, ever at home. We just, on the stage, will like, throw something together. And, you know, it's one of those things that developed over time. But it is really fun. Well, yeah. Yeah, I never really expected to have that to sing with somebody that I'm with. But it's fun. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and you do harmonize beautifully together. And it would be wonderful to have the two of you. Uh, Play again on the show. I would love that. Yeah. Um, Well, you're going to come back and sing one more song later on in the show. Awesome, yeah. This was beautiful. Stephanie Schneiderman, everybody. Music tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Good Seed Killer Light. It's 100% whole grain, 75 calories, and 3 grams of fiber per organic slice. It makes a killer sandwich that won't kill you. Dave's Killer Bread, making the world a better place one loaf at a time. And now back to Ask Ernest Hemingway on WKTT, Idaho's premier station for game hunting and men's literary concerns.
6: Welcome back to the show. I'm Ernest Hemingway. While I clean my Benelli 12-gauge, I suppose I'll take some of your calls.
5: Uh, Hi, long time listener, first time caller I love the show Uh, Mr. Hemingway, I live in a rustic area and I've started seeing a bear go through my trash outside my house at night What's the best way to handle that? Shoot it
6: Well, I don't know I'll walk you through it, man Take some bait Half a dead pheasant ought to do Leave it in a small clearing at dusk Go sit in a nearby bramble Sit there with your rifle And you wait you wait with the night, and your unvoiced discontent. You sit there, and you wait for that bear to come. When the bear comes, you shoot it, and I mean really shoot the hell out of it. Then you go home, you drink a quart of scotch, and you make love to an older woman. What? what? Next caller. Um.
4: Hi, Ernest. I'm a big fan. Um, It's been about six months since my husband's taken me out on a date. How can I inject some romance back into our marriage?
6: My advice to you is functionally the identical to the last caller.
4: Oh,
2: excuse me?
6: Shoot, drink, older woman. Preferably in that order, but I'm not going to live your life for you. Next caller.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm not sure which tablet PC to buy. The iPad seems like the natural choice, but some of the features on the Galaxy... Okay, it's more than
6: 100 yards away, you shoot it with a rifle. Less than that, I'd suggest a pistol or maybe a shotgun. At 10 yards, you can have sex with it, but you'll have to leap like the Dickens.
2: I'm not going to have sex with a computer. I don't
6: know what a computer is. Next caller. Hello, I'm tracking a wildebeest in the Serengeti. Have sex with it. Excuse me? Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I jumped the gun there. Um, you probably want to shoot that one. Oh, great, they want me to read this. Um, you're listening to Ask Ernest Hemingway on KWTT, brought to you by Benelli Shotguns and Summer's Eve for a clean shot and a clean chamber. Okay, done with that. Uh, next caller.
7: Yeah,
4: uh, Ernest, there's this guy in my office who keeps stealing my lunch.
6: Have you tried shooting him?
2: Uh, well, no. Have
6: you tried having sex with him? No. I don't know why you called, then. (laughs) Next caller.
2: Uh, yeah, my cat keeps leaving dead sparrows in my shoe. How can I get it to stop?
6: I love cats. My tabby, (laughs) Puddles, his name, him and I like to roam nude around my property wearing nothing but our matching colors.
2: R- right, but, but my shoes... Okay, damn
6: it, man. You can't let an animal get the better of you. Kill a California condor and leave it in the cat's shoe. But I... You'll have to get the cat some shoes, of course. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> well, that music means we're out of time. Join us next time when I'll show a cook named Emerald how to make a sandwich using freshly butchered Ibex. I'm Ernest Hemingway, and I believe I've earned myself a drink.
2: That was Sean McGrath, Trisha Ferguson, and Andrew Harris with sound effects by David Ian. You're listening to LiveWire with music conversation and comedy. It's like a chew toy for your brain. Coming up on LiveWire, graphic novelist Craig Thompson, author Isabel Wilkerson, poet Scott Poole, and more beautiful music from Stephanie Schneiderman. We'll be right back. Has written four graphic novels, including the hugely successful and also huge Blankets, the 600 page autobiographical story of his evangelical childhood and first love. His latest book, Habibi, tells the story of two escaped child slaves who are separated in a fictional Islamic country. The UK's Guardian called it an obsessive orgy of art which sounds like a lot of fun, frankly. Please welcome Harvey Award, Eisner Award, and two-time Ignatz Award-winning Craig Thompson to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thanks, Courtney. It is great to have you here on our Wordstock show. Um, So just to give people some reference, can you just sort of briefly sum up the story of Habibi? Oh,
8: I hate that question. Uh, It's sort of a uh, a fairy tale in a sort of Arabian Nights landscape, for lack of a better word, uh, in that it's it's fantastical, but it it has these desert scapes and harems and all those sort of Orientalist tropes of 1,001 Nights, uh, but a lot of contemporary themes of... uh, water crisis, predominantly, and uh, comparative religions, at least in terms of the Abrahamic religions, and um, sexual trauma.
2: And a little bit of urban decay, maybe?
8: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of intermingled with that water crisis. Yeah, Fun. it's
2: a sunny story. It's a comic book. It's sunny. Um, <laughs> it is really fantastical, and your prior book was, it was extremely autobiographical and personal, so why, why'd you make that leap this time?
8: Well, I, I mean, they say that you can expose more of yourself through fiction and I think that's kind of the case. I thought fiction would be easier, however. In uh, what way? Well, because you, so you're just making up a bunch of lies, you know? you're not. I didn't think you would be exposing yourself in the same manner. Uh, but in fact, uh, at times it was paralyzing the limitless possibilities of fiction. It was like a choose-your-own-adventure book. So, uh, you know, I, in, in, memoirs are easier because oh, the story's already there. You just kind of chisel away the de- details, but the story's there. You just to choose how to tell it.
2: Right. So how did you narrow down the next story that you were going to tell if you did have all these endless possibilities?
8: Uh, well, th- it's a little bit of a spoiler, but the, the sort of the magic square structure was, was this sort of contrived skeleton I needed to, uh, to kind of map the book upon. Uh, before that, I had a really loosey-goosey sort of stream of consciousness draft that was uh, kind of limp and flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I discovered these magic squares. They're sort of like a, a sudoku, like a mystical uh, talisman from North Africa. It's a pre-Islamic talisman of like nine squares, each embodying or encompassing uh, an Arabic letter and its corresponding numeric value. I started to think of that as a structure for the book. So there's nine chapters, and each chapter is shaped by the themes of those letters.
2: And that's introduced initially, it's it's pronoun- is it pronounced Dodola?
8: Dodola, sure, D-dola. I don't
2: know. <laughs> and <laughs> she's, write it, she's know. the older of the two slaves, and she sort of creates a game for Zam, right? Yeah, sort
8: of- she, and she's a, sort of a Sherazad type of character. She's telling stories for survival. Only with Sherazad it's to avoid her own beheading, and with Dodola, it's to, uh, to kind of like give some shelter to this, this orphaned boy, Zam, or Zam.
2: right. Um, The imagery in this book is absolutely gorgeous, and there's a lot of beautiful patterns that look like woodcuts and intricate drawings of things like this boat that's floating on a sea of sand, and um, there was a glowing review of the book that I already mentioned in The Guardian, and and, uh, Michel Faber said at the opening of the review, there is an odd prejudice in the world of serious comics against lavish displays of skill. What does he mean by that?
8: Well, the new wave of sort of uh, indie comics, as we call them, really embrace, I guess, a Charles Schultz sort of ethic in terms of minimalism. I mean, comics is thought of as a minimalist sort of art form, you know, where you carve away all the extraneous details to get to the essence of a line. But I I, I agree with a lot of those philosophies. Um, Chris Ware talks about comics as typography, where you're not really drawing drawings. You're drawing this new fusion form that's like pictures that you read. But I think of comics as calligraphy, because the, the drawings are essentially handwritten. It's like a calligraphy, calligraphy form of drawing.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and you, there's a lot of calligraphy in this, um, Arabic callib- calligraphy in this, and it seems like you did tons of research on the Quran, and there's comparisons between the Quran and the Bible in this. What, to you, is the crux of the difference between those two books? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I,
8: I don't know... I don't see dramatic differences between them. I think think there's dramatic differences between how they're um, uh, absorbed. I think uh, Christian culture has this really kind of uh, hokey sort of DIY connection with their holy book where anybody can pick it up and handle it and draw comics about it. And I think, uh, you know, like the Torah and the Quran have a little bit more of a, a, a kind of mysterious sort of sacred quality about them. So. So, and this interaction is different between the two books. But the Quran, it reminds me of the more poetic books of the Bible, so Ecclesiastes, Song, Song of Songs. you know, those are More sort of lyrical
2: than the Bible, very, probably. Very much more
8: lyrical. Um, in some ways, there's less information. It works in tandem with the Bible, so it helps to have the biblical stories, the more fleshed-out stories, because they're passed over in, in, a, in a more lyrical way in the yeah. Quran.
2: Um, if you're just tuning in, we are talking to Craig Thompson on LiveWire about his book Habibi, and you actually, you, you worked for seven years on this book?
8: Yep, from conception to publication.
2: When you work on a book for that long, does your style change?
8: Yeah, yeah, with all my projects. And so that's kind of the last stage of drawing, is going back and fixing all the ugly drawings. And most of those are the characters, like their faces morph over time. If you're drawing for six, seven years, right, it's inevitable. You kind of get to know them better. I mean, with Blankets, it was motivated a lot by this uh, French comic by Louis Trondheim, Lapignot, which is... He didn't know how to draw whatsoever when he challenged himself to a 500-page book, a comic book graphic novel. Uh, So he drew 500 pages, and he gained some skills along the way. And that was what I first applied to Blankets when I took it on.
2: What is it that appeals to you about these larger projects, as opposed to just a few page, even a 100-page graphic novel?
8: Well, with Blankets, it was sort of an act of defiance against the norms in the comic book world. Like, comics are known for these explosive science fiction, sci- you know, fantasy superhero epics that unfold in 24 pages in a pamphlet, you know? So I wanted to make a big, big book where nothing happens whatsoever. It's just like... It's a very quiet, like sweet story. Quiet, and it's kind of internal things happening. And, um, it's, you know, it's like, it's like a Midwestern landscape, very barren and, and stark and, and, and cozy. And... Um, and I had different intentions with Habibi, but, you know, for me, I kind of want, you know, just like a, a prose experience, I want to get really involved. I want to feel the characters change. I want to change as a reader and as an author, and I want to drown in the experience. I don't, you know, most, like, things that are labeled as graphic novels are essentially short stories in comics form. They might be 100 pages, but it takes way more pages of comics to tell the same amount of information you can communicate in a paragraph of prose. So. Right.
2: Well, and what's amazing about this is it's not just that it's 600 pages, but it's 600 really dense pages. It's not like you, you spread a story out maybe like you did with blankets. You, you did the opposite with this book.
8: Yeah, and that's because it was informed by those, these Islamic arts, the calligraphy and the geometric design and ornamentation, all this dense, swirling pattern, like almost, you know, psychedelic in a sense. You, you know, again, this, this notion of drowning in, in, in all of it.
2: Yeah. Um, and in, in Blankets, you wrote how satisfying it is to leave a mark on a blank surface to make a map of my movement, no matter how temporary. What is the mark that you feel like you made with Habibi?
8: <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, for me, it was a, all my books are sort of a meditation or not a meditation, but they're about um, two characters, about relationships, two characters that sort of carve out a shelter with each other in the midst of a cold, heartless world. Uh, And Habibi dives deeper. It dives into a darker space that's more about, you know, facing, you know, doing like internal battle or the the greater jihad, um, where you have to learn how to heal yourself before you're able to really be present with another person.
2: Well, and it seemed like with Blankets, it was such an internal story, and this story brought in the entire world.
8: Yeah, I mean I don't want to give away spoilers, but the book is sort of three acts. So there's a sort of idyllic point of the book where the characters are together and then there's a second act where they spend hundreds of pages separated, longing for each other. And that longing is something that's an element in all my books. That's easy for me to tap. I think most art is about longing in that sense you're trying to like recapture something you've lost, perhaps before you were born. Uh, but then the hardest chap- you know, the h- hardest part of the book to write was that third act. It, which is, in a way, sort of about adult relationships, if you come together and actually try to, um, yeah, again, heal these parts of yourself to be present with another.
2: Well, it, it was a stunning book, and um, I'm not sure what you're working on, but uh, I, I saw on your blog that you had posted, um, it's a 70-foot comic scroll that you made in fourth grade, and it's really complex. Um, it might be more complex than Habibi, so any chance that that's going to be your next project?
8: No, but similar to that, I, I, I'm doing. I'm starting on a book that's all ages because I really want to give back to. I've done all these like serious comics for adults, again trying to break the norms of the preconceived ideas of comic books, but now I really want to give back to that child that first sort of, con- you know, connected with the medium, and uh, you know, that's the future.
2: Well, we look forward to that project, and uh, it's, uh, the book is Habibi. It's a beautiful graphic novel, and the author is Craig Thompson. Thank you so much for joining us, Craig. You're listening to Livewire Radio Variety for people attracted to shiny mental objects.
5: And now it's time for Strip Club or Children's Book. We brought audience member Patty on stage to play our game. Patty.
1: Patty, how are you doing? Fantastic. Oh, good,
5: good. And uh, Patty, what do you do for a living?
1: I'm unemployed until now.
5: It's unfortunate that you're unemployed, as I was going to ask you for a job later on backstage.
1: You can still ask. Oh, good. I think I will. (laughs)
5: All right, it's pretty simple. I'm going to read you the name of a title, and you tell me whether it's the name of a children's book or the name of a strip club. And uh, if you get five answers right, you win uh, that turkey sandwich that Sean McGrath is consuming right now. Sean, how is that sandwich? It's a pretty good sandwich, you guys. I'm I'm not kidding. It's pretty good. Excellent, let's play our game. Okay. The Dancing Bear.
1: Children's Story.
5: No, that is a strip club. We should have clarified that bear is spelled B A R E. The Magic Treehouse.
1: Oh, definitely that's a strip club.
5: (laughs) No, that is a book that is read to innocent young children. (laughs) The Magic Garden.
1: That's definitely a strip club.
5: (laughs) That is correct.
1: In Portland, Oregon. The Shy
5: Little Kitten.
1: Oh, that is definitely a strip club.
5: No, young children have that read to them at night in their PJs. Silverlicious.
1: Strip club. No.
5: That is a children's book. Patty?
1: Splish, splash,
5: splat.
1: Well, I used to be a lifeguard, so that's definitely a children's story.
5: That is correct. Good. Go. This might be an easy one. Where the wild things are?
1: Oh, children's story.
5: That is correct. Puss in boots.
1: Children's story. No.
5: (laughs) Obviously, someone has not had a sordid and shameful evening in South Kansas City. Little darlings.
1: Little darlings. Oh, that's a... Children's Story. I'm sorry. It's a
5: very expensive strip club in Las Vegas, Nevada. Girls of Glitter Gulch.
1: Strip club. That's
5: right. Girls A to Z.
1: Strip club. Oh,
5: I'm sorry. The Pink Monkey. Strip club. That's right, Chicago, Illinois. And The Real Hole.
1: That could be either. <laughs> oh, but I've going to say children's story. And she's right!
5: <laughs> With seven right.
1: Oh, I get the sandwich!
5: That means you win the turkey sandwich. Everyone give Patty a huge round of applause. <laughs> Please join us next time when our game is Endangered Species, a pejorative term used to describe women over 40. Thanks for playing.
2: Our next guest spent 15 years researching her book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which chronicles the great migration of 6 million African Americans from the South to the North and Northwest of the United States. She spent most of her career in journalism. She became the first African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize when she was the Chicago bureau chief of the New York Times. And during 2010 and 2011, The Warmth of Other Suns* won the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Hillman Book Prize, the Linton History Prize from Harvard and Columbia, and a paragraph of other awards that you should Google so we won't be here all night. Please <laughs> welcome Isabel Wilkerson to LiveWire. Welcome to the show, Isabel.
9: Great to be here.
2: For our radio audience, she is wearing a fabulous pair of patent leather boots. Gorgeous. Um, That's not important, right? Um, (laughs) Welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. This is a historic book, I think. I actually read that there were lots of reasons why you read the book, but one of them was was the Barry Levinson film, Avalon. Can you explain why that was an impetus for you to write this?
9: I saw that film around the time that I was thinking about what I might do with a book such as this. And it's about uh, an immigrant from an unnamed Eastern European country who comes to the United States, settles in Baltimore, and creates a life for himself. His children are um, basically first generation in the new world, and he has their clashes and wishes and dreams that he has that don't always comport with the kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw that and I thought, that's my story.
2: Right, you were a first generation child in the new world of Washington D.C. and both of your parents had come from the south.
9: Yeah, um, my mother was from Rome. Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) And my father was from Petersburg, Virginia and they met in Washington, D.C., and they had me, and I wouldn't even exist if there weren't this migration, which is typically American story. I mean, most of us are descended from people who came from far, far away and met here and started whole new lineages, so it's a universal story.
2: Right. And you did interview over a 1,000 people. Was it around 1,200? 1,200. 1,200 people in order to tell this story. And So how do you decide among 1,200 people who the three people are that you're going to focus on in the book? And you tell three different people's stories very, just all the way through.
9: Yeah, the 1,200 interviews were actually a casting call It really was auditioning people, and it was a tutorial for me to understand what the people had gone through. And so I narrowed it down after interviewing all these people, and there are lots of different stories, and narrowed it down to three people who I needed to represent several things. One is I needed someone to represent the three major streams of this migration. It wasn't just this haphazard unfurling of lost souls, which is what most migrations are not. People really think about what they're about to do. So I needed them to represent that. Uh, East Coast, Midwest, and then coming out to the West, and I needed three people who had left in different decades, and then I just needed these really great characters, people who were different. You could be on the page, and you knew that that was George, or you knew that that was Ida Mae, and certainly if anybody has has any interest in a surgeon who loves to gamble in Las Vegas and is willing to pay a cab to take him there, Uh then you would know you're on the page with Robert.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So it was Dr. Robert Foster? Yes. Um, and I'm wondering, if, obviously we can't tell all three stories here, but m- maybe tell Ida Mae's story briefly. Yeah,
9: Ida Mae was a uh, sharecropper's wife who had the misfortune of being terrible at picking cotton. You don't think about people being good or bad at it, you know, just figure they just do it, but she was really bad at it. Cotton is, if you think about it, to pick 100 pounds of cotton means picking 7,000 cotton balls. That's a lot.
2: Of well, and it was ball. really, really hard on the hands, it was wasn't hard it? The they hands. got cut up, and some people were
9: really good at it, but she was not.
2: And then, so what was her story?
9: So her story was, well, that wasn't why they left. That was just a nice little story. Right. Um, <laughs> she uh, she left because uh, a relative of her husband's of her husband was beaten to within an inch of his life over a theft he didn't commit. What they thought he had stolen showed up the next day, but there were no apologies. It's just the way it was during the caste system that existed in the South when they were there um, during most of the 20th century until the 1970s. So um, her husband said this is the last crop we're making and they set out on a journey from Mississippi to Chicago.
2: Well, and I think it, it appears that a lot of people haven't told the story that you've told. I think that you're the first one to tell it in the sweeping way that you've told it. But there were sociologists and demographers mm-hmm. who kind of had an idea of why they thought that it happened. Based on these 1,200 conversations do you think something different happened?
9: Well, they were leaving a world that's hard for us to imagine. I mean, they were leaving a caste system that was in effect from the end of the 19th century until um, basically the 1960s, and uh, they were living in a world where it was against the law for a black person and a white person to just play checkers together. I mean, were—we met. you were talking about the Bible earlier before. Well, in courtrooms throughout the South, there was a black Bible, and then there was a white Bible for people to swear to tell the truth on. I mean,
2: well, and isn't there a story in the book about them? They had to wait for the black Bible to show up.
9: Yeah, they they couldn't find the black Bible during one trial, and they had to go and search the courtroom to find that Bible before that person could swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and as we
2: know. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you're just tuning in with us, we are talking to author Isabel Wilkerson. The book is The Warmth of Other Suns, which has just come out in paperback. The research that you did for this book is obviously exhaustive. And it wasn't just the people that you talked to. I thought you were going to say
9: exhausting.
2: (laughs) Well, both. I would say both. (laughs) Um, But you also... There was so much documentation. What was the most exciting thing that you got to put your hands on in terms of documentation?
9: That's interesting. Um, One happened to be uh, an actual ad with the specs for the 1949 Buick Roadmaster. You wouldn't think that that would be that big of a deal, but that's the car that Dr. Foster drove, and I needed to be able to drive it with... to to describe it exactly as it looked. And that was one thing. Another thing was... uh, uh, actually getting a, my hands on this document. Um, it was a journal article that had run uh, in Britain in 1883 that described the laws of migration which apply to anyone who might do such a thing. Wow. Yeah.
2: You actually rode the same roads that these guys rode. You actually followed their path. Yeah. And you did that with your parents. Yeah. What was that experience of le- like of going back with your parents to the south that they left?
9: Well, for one thing, people didn't talk about it, so they had not talked about their experience. I really didn't know much about this from my own personal experience, so I thought it'd be fun. Anyway, we were driving, and we had to go from uh, Louisiana to California, and we had to go through the desert, and we got to the point where the road gets mean. Everybody who's driven that knows the part I'm speaking of in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And uh, I began to veer from the road, and at that point, uh, my parents got worried for all of us, and they said um you must stop the car you just have to stop the car because this is dangerous and if you won't stop the car let us out wow so we stopped the car
2: yeah
9: <laughs> in Yuma wow uh, so we didn't follow the, the route that he had we didn't get the chance to experience truly driving the entire way without being able to stop which is what he'd had to do yeah in
2: 1953 and the, these, are, these, are emo- these are frightening stories, they're emotional stories. You obviously knew what you were doing. You won the, the Pulitzer Prize for journalism when you were working for the New York Times, but were there any conversations or situations that all of that journalism training didn't prepare you for?
9: That's a really tough one. I think that uh, the difficult part comes when you're, you're just having to spend time with people, and you, these are there's an occupational hazard with a book like this. People were up in years. There's this race against time to get them before it was too late, and there'd be times when I'd fly out to see one of them, and uh, I'd have to go to the hospital instead of to their homes to interview them, and they'd be yeah. they'd be not well, and that was difficult, obviously. Well,
2: you did speak to these people for so many years, yes. and... How did knowing them and how did writing the book change you?
9: Oh, I'm a totally different person for it. I, I see the world differently. I have a great appreciation and gratitude for the sacrifices that were made for all of us to be here. I mean, all of us are in this place at this time on this soil because somebody did what the people in this book did. Somebody came from a long, long ways away right. to a place that they'd never seen America in hopes that life might be better and we're the beneficiaries of it.
2: And you wrote about these people, yeah. Um, there's a great uh, piece in the story where you actually picked cotton with Ida Mae. Can you talk about that?
9: We were driving. We were, I went back with those who, would, who, would, who were willing to go back. And we went back to Mississippi to where she was from. She hadn't... Really been there in decades. We were driving down this tiny road, and there was all this cotton uh, in the field that had not yet been picked. It goes on forever. And uh, she she decided. She said, "Stop the car. We can." The stopping of the car by these people is something else. But anyway, uh, we stopped the <laughs> car. <laughs> we stopped the car, and she uh, she wanted to get out and pick. I mean, here she was in her 80s, and she she hated picking it, and she had been really bad at it. And here she was wanting to pick, and I said, "Are are you sure? I mean, this cotton belongs to somebody, and, you know, we're in Mississippi.
2: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It not we, everything has changed. No, well, so much. I mean, yeah. there is a reverse migration. It belongs
9: to somebody. Yeah. Not us. Yeah. And so she got out there and she wanted to pick, and I, to, I'm going to follow her because I'm writing about her, and, and she starts to pick. I mean, I got pictures. She got pictures of me. We just had a really good time. We we're like tourists in the cotton fields. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, well, it was it was a wonderful story, and the book itself is just sweeping and poignant, and it's amazing. It doesn't you learn so much. You learn as much as you would from a history book, but it feels like you're reading three really wonderful novels. Um, uh, it's really a, a lovely book. The book is The Warmth of Other Suns. The author is Isabel Wilkerson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks <laughs> You're listening to LiveWire, radio variety for music and comedy and conversation-loving bookish types and also other people. For more information, visit our website at livewireradio.org. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who would like to remind you that their hormone and antibiotic-free turkeys also meet the high lifestyle standards of the Global Animal Partnership, including no crates, cages, or crowding, which is better than most reality TV shows can say. More information can be found at wholefoodsmarket.com.
4: Society of History takes an historic look back into the annals of history Tonight, we revisit the 12th century by reading an excerpt from the childhood diary of the most famous conqueror Genghis Khan
3: May 31st, 1172 Hi diary Today is a birthday party for my 10th birthday and it sucks Like, I thought it was going to be super mega fun, but like, everything is going wrong. My brothers, Kastar and Kachuin, they put grass in my hair without my knowing. So for like two hours, I was walking around like an idiot, all grassy-headed. And all my friends were like laughing, and nobody said anything until my mom, she come over and she brushed it out. And then instead of a chocolate cake, which I clearly told them that that's what I wanted, we instead, we just had mutton and fermented horse milk. And all the presents, all the presents, they suck too. Except for my older brother Tomugi who gave me a fur hat which is pretty cool. I think it's gonna look super good on me. But then my dad he made everyone be quiet for his big announcement and I thought maybe I would be getting a new stallion but instead he said I have to marry this girl named Borte but I don't even like her diary. I mean why do I got to rule my life? It's like nobody gets me. God I wish I was older so I could like vanquish all my enemies you know and I would like stretch the Mongol Empire to the gates of Rome or something diary. God, I'm so mad. Anyway, I guess I should get back to the party. I'll write more later after we pin the tail on the donkey. God, I hope he doesn't kick me this time. Bye, diary.
4: That was Genghis Khan from tonight's historical segment from the Livewire Historical Society of History. Next time, we look at the diary of social philosopher, author, and English statesman Sir Thomas More, where we learn that the seed for More's enduring work, Utopia, came about when Thomas was only seven and playing pleasant games of cricket with his best friend, Utopia Jones.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Stephanie Schneiderman. Stephanie Schneiderman.
10: Thank you so much.
2: And now, as promised, the man who's been writing for the past hour while well, we have been slacking off <laughs> to sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole.
10: What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. Don't deny it. At some point, you all wanted to be Hemingway. Maybe for just a few moments. I don't care what you say. You could be a grandma, violins playing in the background, knitting a sweater, a kitten at your feet, playing with your little balls of yarn. But before you know it, Your earl grey is full of scotch and your sweater is in the shape of a shotgun cozy and the two pheasants on the sweater have a red target painted over them with a sharpie. For me, my Hemingway moment is that I keep wanting to improve on one line he wrote. I've seen lions on the beaches. God, I love that line from Old Man in the Sea. I mean, that's a good damn line. Hemingway didn't repeat too many lines, but he repeated that one. It's a perfectly distilled line like a Craig Thompson cell soaked in Islamic calligraphy. Go ahead and try to put something else in. I've seen Slurpee cups on the beaches. That's kind of sad. I saw a video game enthusiast eat a churro on the beaches. Yeah, so what? Anything you can come up with, that's a line you wouldn't want to hear if you were naked. And I want to write a line that can be heard by the naked. I've seen a single set of footprints on the beaches. That's where I carried you, my son. Yeah, I'm not the only one who's tried it. It's, it's not just that Hemingway was manly. Genghis Khan was a manly dude, too. But he didn't write, and I've seen lions on the beaches. That separates Hemingway like drowning in a scotch-colored sunset. It's not quite the same for Genghis Khan to say, I've seen a buffet full of frozen meat on the beaches that you can watch be cooked in front of you, sesame seeds. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm never going to come up with anything to match lions on the beaches. Wait. Wait, I've seen beaches on the lions. Hey, that might have a chance. I'll keep writing.
2: Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our great guests tonight, Craig Thompson, Isabel Wilkerson, and Stephanie Schneiderman. The mutton Shops are Ralph Huntley, Paul Evans, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and our newest sponsor, Burgerville, introducing Burgerville Radio, featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Tricia Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, house poet Scott Poole, and Ben Coleman. Faces for Radio Theater was directed by Jason Rouse. Our recording engineer is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Paul O'Brien. Live show lighting by Rhiannon Betts. Production management by Drew Flint. Stage management by Matt King. Show theme by Courtney Vondrele and Ralph Huntley. LiveWire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Huge thanks to Greg Netzer and the entire Wordstock Festival staff for another fantastic year. For more information about LiveWire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit LiveWireRadio.org.
0: Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of LiveWire delivered right to your heart and ears each week?